But the most mm -hmm. important thing really is, you know, your blueprint, your DNA, it's in your stories. And no matter what it takes to get that story made or seen or heard, you just have to hold on to that story and believe in it. And then you can believe in yourself because mm -hmm. nobody has a story that you can tell, you know, and that that is the key. My name is Wes Givens and welcome back to the Tungsten Originals podcast. You just heard part of my conversation with writer and director Melissa Hazlett. We discussed her Oscar shortlisted documentary, Mr. Soul. Before Oprah, before Arsenio, there was Mr. Soul. Ellis Hazlip ensured the revolution would be televised with Soul, America's first Black Tonight show. We discussed why the film took 10 years to make, its critical recognition, and why Melissa knew she was the perfect person to tell the story. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Episode 63 of the Tungsten Originals Podcast. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I am really excited to talk about your film, Mr. Soul. I feel like I got an exclusive sneak peek of the film almost three years ago now when I saw it at the Indie Memphis Film Festival, because since then, I mean, it has had just an incredible trajectory in terms of the audience it's building and the recognition, like critically that it's getting. So I feel like I'm in a, in a really special place to, you know, to talk to you about it. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to to do another interview because I'm sure you've done thousands by this point. <laughs> you know, it's so great to be able to talk about the film. So any mm -hmm. opportunity. And I love being in Memphis, by the way, our film yeah. film festival. And it was such an incredible moment. Yeah. And then we got to close the film festival as well at the Museum of Civil Rights, the Civil right. Rights Museum. So it was really an incredible experience to be in Memphis. Yeah, I grew up just south of Memphis. My mom is from Memphis. So oh, I've been cool. going there my whole life. And I know Mr. Soul like wasn't shot in Memphis or anything, but like it just feels perfect for the city. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And I wish I could have gone to like the Stax Museum when I was there. The Stax Museum is so cool. Yeah. It was closed the one day I had some downtime. Oh, dang. Festival, so I was like, I have to come back. Yeah, exactly. Now it's a better reason to to go back. So I just think it's so locked into what like the culture of Memphis and everything. Absolutely. You know, now Green is there. So I was actually trying exactly. to get with him while I was there. So Right. Right. <laughs> the other movie title is Chasing Al Green because I've yeah. spent so many years hoping <laughs> to get into the film. <laughs> right. Did you interview him in Memphis? No, I didn't get a chance. As okay. a matter of fact, he did say yes. Mm. And I had literally bought the plane tickets to fly in my DP from Washington, D.C. and my really special gapper from Los Angeles. Mm. And everybody was all set to go. And then unfortunately, the Reverend changed his mind. And uh, that he wasn't available, even though he was, you know, we were ready. Right, and, right. But we didn't get to do the interview, but I just hope that one day we will, you know, because he's yeah. such a beautiful part of the story. Mm. But even just having his incredible footage yeah. and seeing him perform as, you know, back in the day, mm. oh, it's just incredible. It's really yeah. one of the highlights of the entire film for me. When that toe starts tapping and yeah. the leg and you're like, okay, it's on. <laughs> it feels like you're watching it when it's live, you know? That was exactly what we were trying to, a vibe we were trying to create mm -hmm. to make people feel like they were there. So there yeah. wasn't so much of a 
like a retro feeling, like something you were looking back on. But right. then part of that sort of the the feeling and the the incredible sort of kinetic energy that happened on that set and, mm -hmm. and you wanted it to feel like it was happening in the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I mean in the trailer there's a great quote that says like it was it was so ahead of its time that it was in time. And I think the documentary is is very similar in a lot of ways because it feels like you were just saying, it feels so present both to like the the conversations that we are having in like the zeitgeist right now and it's also i just i feel like i'm sitting at home watching it on the tv so it's just you such a perfect melding yeah it's a really remarkable um chapter of our history and it's something that's so familiar so on the one hand you know i like to say to people it's the greatest show you've never heard of right. <laughs> and on the other hand for the people who really lived that moment and have those lived experiences in music and in soul and maybe even had seen the show or been to the show or perform mm -hmm. performed on it. That's a whole nother way of appreciating this story. But right. there's definitely two camps of people. The ones who are like really mad that they never heard of it before. <laughs> like, what? How did I miss this? Right. And then, and then the people are like, oh, thank God, finally. Right. You know, right. Waiting for this to come back. Right. I feel like I'm in the first camp because whenever I saw it, I had no idea i just said i mean right. of course i i was you know not alive when it was being shot and like on air so that that'll be my excuse but i still had never like heard the stories about it or anything and for the audience members who are listening to this episode who haven't heard about it could you give like just a short little descriptor on what mr soul was and also what your documentary is absolutely so the story is kind of unique it's about a television show but it's also about a man it's kind of a hybrid documentary we're giving the, the biography of a show and a biography of a man at the same time who really impacted that show. The name of the show was Soul, and it was on PBS broadcast nationwide from 1968 to 1973. And it really launched the careers of many of the African-American icons of the 20th century. And it was really unusual because it was a black show that was really made for the people by the people and it really changed the landscape of television by creating an opportunity for not just inclusion and uh, freedom of expression, but really to see people of color in their true light, of, in the complete, like, holistic view of the African-American experience on television, which heretofore had not yet happened. So our film, uh, Mr. Soul, kind of zeroes in on the one person who was the beating heart behind it all. His name was Ellis Hayslip. And he was the kind of unassuming host who really took on this great character to push the culture forward throughout the five years of Soul, really creating opportunities for so many of the artists that we know and love from Nikki Giovanni, James Baldwin, Al Green. Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie Wonder, you know, Patti mm. LaBelle and the Bluebells. It was an extraordinary array of talent, but it also included activists and poets and a wider range of um, people that really represented the African-American diaspora. And mm -hmm. keep in mind that the reason this is revolutionary was because television was pretty much, you know, white, <laughs> for yeah. lack of a better term, at this time. And the country was changing is responding to, you know, the protests were responding to uh, the moment when Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And there was a lot of turmoil in the country as 
folks were trying to come to terms with what this meant. Very similar to what we experienced here in the country last summer. So there's like a real parallel between what was happening 50 years ago and that kind of cultural revolution and today's kind of cultural revolution based on um, you know, the events of last summer. And so it's interesting to see how culture moves and causes change and pushes change forward and how far we've come and yet how far we have yet to go in terms of equality, social justice, racial justice, not to mention representation mm -hmm. on television, you know, the fight for social justice and representation, but also who we are as a people and um, this idea of black excellence and black greatness, revisiting it then and then being inspired by it now. Yeah, it's just such an interesting story, like like you said, especially because of that time frame, because like, I mean, late 60s, early 70s, so many huge American historical events happened in oh that time frame. Goodness. It was, yeah, it was a maelstrom of events. Yeah. And when you look back at 1968, it really was a pivotal moment. So mm. much was happening in America, not to mention being on the heels of the civil rights and struggling right. through the after effects of Jim Crow and how mm. that was defining the country and the way we related to each other, but also the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive, the women's movement, you know, everything was coming to a head. Yeah. And in our film, we talk about specifically about, you know, black people in this country and how they were responding to these pressures and societal norms and, and trying to reinvent ourselves on this great American landscape. And that's a one of my favorite lines from the film that actually is said by the poet, um, it'll come back to me, Sonia Sanchez, I beg your pardon. <laughs> And Sonia Sanchez had been the uh, poet laureate of Philadelphia, and mm -hmm. she really nails this moment by saying, you know, we had come through something and we needed to reimagine ourselves as black people. We had to we were looking for a more expansive view of ourselves because there was so much negativity at that time mm -hmm. and so much stereotyping and so much right. unwillingness to you know, see all people of color and the demographics of America, which were expanding and changing. And when you when you think about how culture and art really impact music and and relations between, you know, all kinds of people, it makes complete sense that there's this sort of undercurrent of culture all the time and culture moving things forward and art as activism. You know, we, mm -hmm. we think about that now because right. that's kind of how we go through life, but in the 60s, it wasn't really defined that way. And so it was important for black people, especially to find a way to see a more expansive definition of themselves and, and not responding to or reacting to this somewhat of oppression that we were coming out of, but saying, you know, we have this innate beauty and talent and joy and love. And if we can just express that, There'll, there'll be more equal justice. There'll be more recognition of our humanity. And, and right. where can we find a space for that? Mm -hmm. And ironically, you know, this happened to be the moment when television and public television was, was creating that space for liberal expression, not just liberal political expression, but a redefinition and expansiveness of our culture and our realities. And so it kind of is it's really a kinetic moment when these things were bumping up against each other. This idea of public television, like 
a system being set up right. all around the country and people wanting to express themselves in a way that didn't involve commercialism, didn't involve uh, ratings. It was sort of like unapologetic, like here we are folks, you mm -hmm. know, and it's, it's really fascinating when you look at it that way. It's one thing to look back and say, oh, what a wonderful nostalgic retro time. Look at those outfits, <laughs> listen to that music, but it's another right. thing to say, wait a minute, this is like a time capsule. Mm -hmm. We can certainly learn from this and and look at these revolutionary voices of this time of that time and see how they can help us you know guide us through the times we're in yeah i mean mr soul is the perfect name for for the for the film because like ellis was the centerpiece yeah. of of the whole thing like he recognized that he wanted the quote unquote crazy people on there and he wanted these like really intimate discussions that we don't see today, like be about like the um, relationship between like black women and black men, he really took everything head on. And I just love the fact like, like the, the stories about how they they had someone else host for like a little like a couple episodes. And it just he was not good that, that they didn't work out. And so without Ellis, like it wouldn't have been what it ended up being, you know, it's so funny, because it's kind of, you get to enjoy this sort of unsung hero vibe with Ellis yeah. because it's so much easier to, to, to glom on to someone that feels relatable. And we really wanted to show that he was kind of a fish out of water in the beginning. He was kind of a, a reluctant host, if you will, right. because he didn't know, he knew what he had the vision for the show and for the artists, but he really didn't see himself as a celebrity. He saw himself as like a vessel creating an mm. opportunity because not only was Seoul a vehicle for African-American artistry, but it turned out to be a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice. This is not the trifecta we knew for television. You know, you had, when you think about late night television, Tonight Show and Ed Sullivan, you had, you know, charming host, yeah. comes out, does his little monologue sits down at the desk and brings people on and everyone goes home and it's a nice evening. Right. That was the model that had existed on regular television. So for Ellis Hazlip to interrupt that model, <laughs> that's why we kind of start with the landscape of television so you can see visually what was happening. And suddenly you have color television and people of color entering into that sphere and everything changes. And it was mm. important to show that so you could get a feel for how incredible it was that this one man could have this expansive vision of black culture and offer it up to say, you know, we're, we're actually not here for your judgment, but mm -hmm. we hope that you enjoy it while you're here. Because mm -hmm. it was the first time that black people were coming into other people's living rooms. You have to remember that, you know, everything was just on the heels of being segregated and, um, there, you know, folks didn't interact that much, right? <laughs> which is weird when you think about it now, but it really was the case. And so there was something really unique about an opportunity to see this kind of unapologetically black, unfettered, just completely raw expression of the arts and politics and history and community and disagreement and agreement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was all there. And really, really, that's what makes it so pioneering, that pioneering mm -hmm. spirit to say, well, what is this thing called public television? 
how right. much do I get away with? <laughs> yeah. It's a medium for us, you know? And even when I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> <laughs> Right. You know, even the fifth episode, which was The Last Poets, and The Last Poets, you know, considered to be the godfathers of rap, right? They are like in the history books for that, but you can't believe the language they're using and how percussive and expressive and somewhat dangerous and kind of, you know, um, just a little bit scary because you, you, you have no idea what they're going to do. They're unpredictable and you haven't seen anything like it. Nobody really knows what the spoken word thing is. You know, it's not Jack Kerouac and it's not like the beat poet. So what is it? And then they come out there and they just do this incredible like sonic boom of culture using the n-word and you know it, it was profane and it was exciting and it was dangerous and it should have been canceled at that moment <laughs> <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> that's so funny my favorite my, one of my favorite lines in the film is um loretta long who was the original co-host before ellis started and we now know her because she went on to uh, go to Sesame Street and she became the character right. of Susan, Susan right. Robinson. But before that, she hosted Soul. It was her first television gig for like 11 episodes. And she talks about that moment and she said, you know, I, I'm i glad I had a day job because I figured we were done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Working it. We're done. You know, right. that, like, how can you be so bold and so fearless in the fifth episode that was october 24th 1968 mm. you're not even five shows out the gate and you're risking it all right that really is that says so much about the vision that they had for the show and the risks they were willing to take mm. you know and thank god and thank god they did because that right. kind of marks like the first moment of spoken word and that Everything came after that. Hip hop came after that. You know, deaf poetry jam and poetry slams and all the stuff we take for granted and deaf poetry on Broadway and mm -hmm. all of the hip hop kind of ciphers. It all comes from that original moment, which kind of, you know, makes the hair stand up on my arm a little right, bit. Right, right. Because it makes you wonder, wow, you know, what am I doing now? That <laughs> yeah. Impactful in 50 years. I'm not quite so sure. Right. But this idea that these artists knew, you know, this was the way to get their message across this new medium of television. And mm -hmm. um, because it was sort of democratizing opportunity and it, it hadn't been stopped yet. So this idea that let's go as far as we can go and mm -hmm. just be our authentic selves um, mm -hmm. on television and put that message into people's living rooms and see what happens. Right. Really radical, really radical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you um, are nailing home the point about like how authentic they were because, and I'm also glad that you brought up about like how this is on the tail end of segregation because a lot of people in my generation mm -hmm. forget that, <laughs> you exactly. know? It's kind of like the way, you know, this new generation is totally um, digital and they just can't right. analog. That's how I kind of put right. it. Like they pretty soon us dinosaurs will have died out and we'll be the last ones connected to that other world of analog where mm -hmm. we remember not growing up with cell phones and we remember you know that first car phone and the first computer and co computer science classes and things like right. that 
but when you, it, it is hard in terms of our advancements of as a as a culture to remind people that that we were so much more divided and it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And that everything yeah. that we base our democracy on now of equality, um, civil rights, like that was all new. And it was mm -hmm. new and it was fraught because it was being fought. And so mm -hmm. while the dust was settling around everything, you know, even the Civil Rights Act, the idea right. of being yourself and being free and having the right to be yourself and to take up space in a, in a right. place that wasn't originally designed for you, that's, mm -hmm. what, that's where you see how progressive the show is. And the idea that, you know, Black people could be responsible for their own expansiveness and their own you know, for their autonomy and for their artistry. Mm. That is, uh, that's what's breathtaking about it. When you see that kind of honesty and it's, um, it, it's so sincere. And it, even though the film is like laden with celebrities, it wasn't a celebrity filled zeitgeist at the moment because black people are still struggling to, you know, have equal rights. So right. the idea of crossing over and becoming famous or, being seen that was what the show was about to give visibility to artists who because of their race hadn't had a platform before mm -hmm. so wild when you think of like all these artists being seen for the first time just mm -hmm. think you know let that sink in for a minute just being seen mm -hmm. because if they were musicians maybe they were on what we call the chitlin circuit where you know you got to perform around the country but only in black spaces or the Apollo, like those were like your two right. <laughs> right, or right. the radio, you know, you'd cut your records and you'd, you'd payola and you'd get heard, but you didn't get to see these people. And so there is this thing that people still talk about where, and I remember because my parents used to do it when they, when there would be a black person on television, you'd be like, blacks on TV, blacks on TV, call your neighbor, call your uncle, your auntie and call everybody's turn on the television if you have one. You know, right, right. <laughs> and if you have one, call the neighbors over. There's a black person, you know. And so the the few people who started to have opportunities on television, that's why the film kind of starts out that way, to help you understand what the landscape of television was and wh why it was radical of soul to interrupt that landscape. Because mm -hmm. I, I think that touched on the idea that it was it was equally uh important or maybe as like equally impactful for white audiences who had been fed this negative narrative about black culture especially in the southeast um so it was it was impactful for them because this is the first time that they are seeing a positive take on black yeah. culture but like you were just saying it's also impactful for other black audiences to see themselves on tv basically exactly giving them an opportunity to to have a greater vision of themselves and the connectivity of public television creating that op opportunity is what's so beautiful about it so mm -hmm. you're creating a larger sort of diasporic community around across the nation whereas remember people came from the south the great migration all the different mm -hmm. cultures came together but we were separate we didn't have right. the connectivity of the web the internet, you know, email, everything that puts us 
you know, texts, <laughs> everything that puts us immediately connected with each other, whatever the social media is, whatever it is that we have now that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. So there's no sort of, you know, unifying cultural tie-in until television became that medium and projecting these images all around the country so people could connect and the LA could see what New York was doing. You know, people think that our culture started with the show Soul Train, you know, because of the impact that Soul Train had. And yes, I watched every Saturday. Where my old dances, you know. <laughs> Soul Train line with one person, you know, sure, right. we all did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that, but we have to recognize that Soul came before that by three years. And so the mm-hmm. experimentation that was happening was just as important as right. the sort of cultural establishment like saying we are here we're doing this and this is how we get down and it's great you know and right and and join us really Mm. not like take it or leave it it was more like join us and just see and then and then we'll be able to you know understand each other Mm -hmm. yeah and you were i feel like the perfect filmmaker to make this film because you have a amazing intimate connection with ellis he's your uncle Yes, he's my uncle. And, you know, it's hard to <laughs> explain just how passionate I am about him because he yeah. is like my spirit animal. You know, mm. he started out as my babysitter, which is kind of an easy way to fall in love with him. I was very little and he had moved into our apartment just because he decided to. He had his own apartment in Chelsea on Fifth <laughs> Avenue. But he liked our apartment better on uh, West End Avenue and 80th Street, a little bit up t- further uptown. So he would come back to our apartment after he'd done the soul tapings. And wow. as a little girl, I was super young. I was too mm-hmm. young to go to the tapings and too young to understand what was happening. But I did know that he was magic and that he brought these people home that felt magical to me. They mm-hmm. would drink oatmeal and strawberries at midnight. And I would come running out of my, you know, my little footy pajamas and be like, Alice, Alice, Uncle Alice. And I'd like dive under the table so my parents wouldn't snatch me, you know, <laughs> right. be back in bed where I belonged. Um, but this, I just sort of grew up under his feet all the time and listening to all these stories. And it wasn't until I was much older that I realized, wait a minute, that was, you mean that was James Old Jones' knee I was bouncing on or... Mm. You know, that we had, that it was Clifton Davis and Melba Moore or all, all these people that he would bring over, Anna, right. Anna Maria Horsford, Novella Nelson, Roxy Roker, like that, wow. that whole bit, everything we know about Roxy Roker and the Jeffersons, that was her real life. Mm-hmm. She was our friend and she had, you know, her white husband and her life on the Upper West Side in the kind of apartment that we had. That was all happening in real life and that was mirroring her life even though it was sort of somewhat of a comedy with the jeffersons but you know there was this life that was happening and ellis was very close to me and i was close to him and as time progressed and i grew older he mentored me and you know helped me understand what my trajectory was as an artist and allowed me to sit in on all of his intimate meetings and asked me to actually be his assistant several times so i got to work on several films that he was doing for great performances, Dance in America on Alvin Ailey. And I became his assistant. And, you know, I was known as the kid. But I knew <laughs> right. how to kind of 
I was one of those people who could kind of disappear into the background and be helpful at the same time. And so I inadvertently absorbed all these stories and these relationships that he had. I would be his little ambassador if there was an, an event, you know, he'd pull me aside and say, baby, I need you to take care of Maya Angelou today. Make sure she feels like a queen. And I'd be like, okay, how do I do that? It's <laughs> um, a pretty uh, tall order. It's <laughs> a tall order for a really shy, you know, 19, 20 year old or whatever, right out of college. And, uh, but it, I learned so much and mm. I understood the way he interacted with people was very personal and the relationships he had were personal. And it wasn't kind of the clout chasing that we have today mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. you know, becoming friends with someone for a reason to get something out of it. People loved him for the relationship that he had and they treasured that. And so you see this kind of intimate, um, you know, exchange in when you're looking at that soul footage, there's something magical going on there. Mm -hmm. and it's, you get this better show, as he says, because everybody is so intimate. They're so at home. They feel so loved and so trusted. So what you're seeing is a, res is a result of the relationships he had with so many of these artists, such that he could say, you know, come down to the show, do me a favor and be on it which is what he said to Patti LaBelle for the first episode. I'm like, how did you get Patti LaBelle? That was right. his friend. Yeah. You know, how did he make it happen that Nikki Giovanni could interview James Baldwin in London? James Baldwin was his friend. They had hung out before wow. they had done the, he had produced his first tour of the um, Amen Corner um, in Europe in 19, uh, 1965. And so he was constantly building these relationships. He had this little black book, as I say in the film, and it was just full of everybody's names. If you opened it up, you'd see he was having breakfast with Muhammad Ali, lunch with Kathleen Cleaver, you know, a rehearsal with Gladys Knight and the Pips. And then after the show taping, he was playing cards, you know, on the Upper West Side with a whole bunch of, you know, questionable characters. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it's amazing. Now all of these books now sit in the Smithsonian because after he passed away, his giant collection of ephemera from the arts, everything he'd saved from 19, about 1955 on, all went to the Smithsonian in the Ellis B. Hazel collection. So I used wow. a lot of that as research yeah. for the film. And it was mm -hmm. really weird to be holding his things and touching his things with white gloves now. <laughs> right, right. Even though I was looking at letters from myself, you know, right. from me and my family and also letters home, you know, hand typed letters from James Baldwin and love letters from various people. It was it was kind of weird, but I yeah. knew that because of the access I had to him um, from having been his mentee and his favorite, you know, little niece and that kind of trust that we developed gave me a really unique lens through which to tell this story. Yeah. Honestly, I needed to have a depict him in a, like a 360, like a holistic view so that he was a full character and not just a visitor in his own story. It's yeah. always hard when you have um, a deceased character as the lead because you don't want to make it seem like someone else is telling you, oh, he said this and he did that. And then he said this, and then he did that. 
we wanted Ellis to have agency mm. and to put him in the front of the story. And so that's why we, I sort of structured those little vignettes, which were sort of Ellis's vignettes. And everything you hear in the film, when it's um, the lines that are, that are spoken so beautifully by Blair Underwood as the voice of Ellis Hazlett, those were all taken from Ellis's writings. I spent mm. 10 years researching every article, every interview, every black book that he had. You know, he was really firm when he made his announcements and pronouncements about black culture and any chance he got, he, he would take that platform. So he's saying the most amazing things. And as I culled from all of this, I realized I can build these little vignettes that will help us understand the interiority of this character. And you don't often see that, especially in films about like historic black figures, you get the kind mm -hmm. of treatment of, oh, you know, this is what you're expecting. This is what's been said about him. Here right. are the things people right. have said that, be, that have been with him, but you don't. I was more interested in the interiority. What were the decisions he was making? Right. And how did that impact what the show looked like, what the, how people responded to the show and how he presented the show? That to me was fascinating. I hadn't seen anything like that except for the, it was a great doc on James Baldwin called I'm Not Your Negro. Right. Yeah. We watched that in my documentary oh, class. Amazing at film. School. I love it. So much. Raul Peck is a good friend of mine, the director. And what he did there was really spectacular. And of course, because he's dealing with, you know, literary icon, mm -hmm. you have the words and you know you're going to see sort of like a literary exploration. But Ellis was not like a literary person. But mm -hmm. by the same token, I needed to get into his mind. And so we created that kind of word art to reinforce what he was saying, what his thoughts were. And all along, you get to check in with Ellis and, and the sort of, we called it the internal Ellis. And we mm. also had our composer write a theme for him so that mm. every time you're dropping into his thoughts about something, it's like he's taking you on that journey as opposed to having someone else tell his story. That was really important to give him that agency to kind of make him a hero of his own story, mm -hmm. uh, which it's kind of a a sad story in ways, somewhat melancholy and somewhat um, challenging. But so we needed him to tell that story mm. as opposed to us telling mm -hmm. it or telling it incorrectly. <laughs> right. So yeah, that was a real challenge, but I'm glad um, for that decision. It also created a sort of unifying graphic aesthetic throughout the film and it mm -hmm. helped us weave in and out between a lot of stuff you know we had three storylines basically the story of like storyline a for any filmmakers out there story of eight storyline a is a story of soul so from 1968 to 1973 that's like five years 130 episodes <laughs> and um you know trying to pick the most important ones then storyline b that's the story of ellis hayslip but we're not going to do like a cradle to grave doc or, or a biography, we're just going to drop in on those five years and how they impact the show and give you a little background of before and after. And then storyline C is the story, it's the zeitgeist, mm. what's happening in the nation that would have created an opportunity for a show like Soul to even exist. 
So you have these three storylines and we had to collapse them into one mm -hmm. and find the most salient moments between each storyline and use Ellis's biography to weave in between of all of that. So that was kind of the, the map <laughs> uh, for a very ambitious uh, <laughs> <laughs> undertaking. We literally, right. cut, we literally cut three films. We cut right. three films and each one was color coordinated with, you know, filmmakers will understand this, in the edit bay with, you know, all the way around the room. Yeah. Three different colors. Storyline A was pink, storyline B was green, storyline C was purple. So we could match up and visually, mm -hmm. okay, if we're going to use this clip and it's a, let's say it's a clip from the Soul Archive, like um, it, it has to answer all three storylines. It can't just right. be this. Mm -hmm. So what you know, every clip has to be its own workhorse. It has to answer the Ellis Hazel story, be the best, sorry, the best part of the soul story, answer the Ellis Hazel story and fit into what was happening in some way in the zeitgeist. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how we collapsed everything into three and made, uh, collapsed three, sorry, into one mm -hmm. and um, made it work that way because it was um, really ambitious as I was saying. Right. I really felt like it was hard to do in an hour and a half. Like, how do you even? Yeah, go, seriously. Like, 130 episodes, seriously. Like, I was like, should we just make a series and call it a day? Right. You know, best of, or mm -hmm. I, I felt like it, no matter what we did, it would just be tip of the iceberg in a way because mm -hmm. there's so much here. There's so much to the black arts movement and nobody had really even explored that yet. And then there's so much to these like iconic performances and the music. Oh my God. Yeah. You know? The soundtrack alone tells so many stories. And, and I wanted the music to be a character and for, for it to be universal because music means so much to all of us. You know, it's not just a black movie. It's a story for all of us. We all can relate to Stevie Wonder. We all have a vibe around Earth, Wind and & Fire and, and and we all know exactly where we were, you know, when this music kind of defines us. So in that mm -hmm. way, it's really inclusive. Right. Because music has really has no color and it's um and yet it is the story of our people, of our nation. Mm -hmm. What an incredible responsibility for you as a filmmaker, because in the same way that Ellis Hazlip was the the keeper in a way and like the pipeline for black culture in those five years, yeah. you are now his keeper for uh, like your uncle, which means so, so much to you and the, the show. When yeah. did you realize that like, this is going to take, I mean, it took you over a decade. Like when did yeah. you realize this story needs to be told and it needs to be told by me? I started feeling it in the early 2000s and I thought, well, I knew when he passed away in 91 that it was a tremendous loss and it was a head. Mm. It was so sad because he was only 61 and mm. he had cancer. Uh, but it, it felt like it was the beginning of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. And these artists were just starting to get this opportunity. And because we came through the 80s with, you know, MTV and everything mm. started shifting in the culture, I realized, wow, you know, what it's too it's sad that ellis wasn't here to see that right. 
giant leap that we all took. Mm -hmm. But I realized that not only that, that the people that he touched and the careers that he was responsible for launching, so many of the African-American icons in the 20th century would be leaving us soon. You know, I was worried about right. that. And I was like, I can't imagine a planet without Stevie Wonder, without Chrisley right. Tyson, without, you know, um, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Maya Angelou, you know, Earth, Wind, Fire. I, I, and I thought, in a way, in the same way that the, that the archive is a time capsule, maybe we better do this now. Right. And create also the archive of these artists now and let them tell those, their stories now. And coming up through the 90s and the early 2000s, you still weren't seeing a lot of black films. I mean, monumental series happened like Eyes on the Prize, which was like a phenomenal, you know, documentary series about the civil rights in America. But you weren't really seeing kind of cinematic um, explorations of black culture. I mean, I wasn't seeing them and I started to notice that I wasn't seeing them and wondering, is it because it's just too hard to make? I started sort of snooping around and people were like, oh, forget it. That's going to be impossible. It's too, it's too rights intensive. You're mm -hmm. never going to get the clearances. Everybody you want to talk to is like a famous person now. Yeah. You know? Like you should let somebody else do that. And so I kind of had this idea that I probably should wait and just mm. wait for someone else to do it. And as time went by in the 2000s, in the aughts or whatever we called that decade, I realized, hang on a second, you know, we shouldn't wait and I shouldn't mm -hmm. wait. I was working on other projects, kind of emerging as a filmmaker and an artist. And I thought it has to be me because nobody else has the access and sort of straddling both worlds of having experienced him as a family member, but also being a young budding artist that he was mentoring at the same time with the other artists. So I knew, you know, I babysat for Nikki Giovanni's son. I babysat for Novella Nelson's daughter when she got chicken pox. I was the only one who already had it. See this little <laughs> where I scratched right there? Wow. <laughs> so I was intimately involved with these folks. You know, I was at the pink teacup having brunch. I was working at the Schomburg being Maya Angelou's ambassador, you know, when she came to the events and things. And so I realized that this was something I could tap into. And maybe if I did it, I could convey and imbue this sense of Ellis Hazlip's character and, and his wishes and, and be able to bridge that gap for the artist before it was too late. So that's when I realized that the urgency was there and to try to start getting funding. But it was it was really difficult in the beginning because nobody knew who I was. Right. Not the black Ken Burns, you know. And they're like, <laughs> who is this, you know, woman who thinks that she can do this show with like Stevie Wonder and Sydney Poitier and you know, that's gonna be impossible. But I I just started out by starting small and doing all the research and really had my head down and tried mm. to figure out who the major players were. And luckily, I still had a relationship with all of them, most of them, not the super, super famous ones, but mm. most of the people and the people on the team. And they were just so excited, like, oh, my God, we've been waiting for someone to tell this story. This is like the greatest story you've never heard. And 
-hmm. If somebody doesn't do it, it's going to be lost to time. It's mm -hmm. already been 50 years. So that's when I realized, yeah, I'm kind of inadvertently the person who has to do it too. Similar to Ellis, like the, the unassuming. I was very reluctant. You know, I was like, maybe, and I asked, started asking other people to work with me and mm -hmm. trying to assemble the right kind of team that could work on such a prestige project. Um, because I was a new filmmaker, you know, honestly, I didn't want to get in my own way or mm. have my have that be detrimental in any way, the fact that I wasn't well known. Um, so I kept building myself up and kept doing right. other projects, working with other people and doing shorts and winning awards and building up my kind of resume as a filmmaker all the while I was building Mr. Soul and putting that all together. But it was just really important to me fundamentally to give these artists their flowers while they're here. And because every time we lose someone, it's another heartbreak. Right. You know, I fell to my knees when Maurice, Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire left us. And it was only because I had tried so hard mm -hmm. to get an interview with them. But he was suffering, you know, in the end with MS and didn't want to be depicted that way on camera. Right. So there are all these other reasons why it was hard to get people. But we started picking up steam and started winning all of these grants, which was the hardest part. We decided mm. to fund the film entirely with grants uh, to sort of have the same pedigree as the Soul Show, which was mm. also funded uh, with nonprofit money from the Ford Foundation, of course, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Mm -hmm. We were trying to follow in those footsteps and create a, a film, too, that would be by the people for the people. Right. But by the people with no money it takes a lot longer. <laughs> I, as as a as a young filmmaker, I totally know what you're saying. <laughs> you know what and you know, yeah. with the timing of grant cycles, you can spend so much time. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, you can write a grant for like a year, and and then you submit it, and then there's the review period, and mm -hmm. then by the time you get the results back, and if you don't get the grant and you're rejected you've lost like a year and a half of your life. Right, right. And you don't have the funds to keep to keep shooting. So mm -hmm. it was quite challenging um, to piece it all together. But I'm proud to say that it really was um, entirely funded by grants. We got a really big grant, the Beast, I call it, uh, from the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's a production mm -hmm. grant, and they only give out four a year, um, mm. twice a year. And those grants usually go to some, like, major historic film a film that's already guaranteed a broadcast or a, mm. a strand you know like oh that's going to be on american masters or it's automatically going to be on pov or you know great performances or something so that was really hard was to convince them you know yes no we don't have a strand and no it's not based on a pulitzer prize winning historical novel but we're writing it meaning i and it's important. Yeah. I have to keep figuring out ways to share and almost like educate you on how important this is mm -hmm. just because you don't know about it. That could be a whole other rabbit hole about, you know, black mm -hmm. culture needing to ascribe value to culture when people don't know about it. It's, right. like it's not important or it's not valued. And you have to figure out a way to get past that and say, yes, it is. And maybe history and time will tell which is kind of what was happening with Ellis, you know. He mm -hmm. knew what he was doing was important. He mm -hmm. knew that documenting the culture and presenting it would be appreciated, but possibly not during that time. 
-hmm. And here we are 50 years later and it's finally grabbing hold, which is really exciting. Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear about like your journey and growth as a, as a filmmaker, as you make this project, because the fact that this is your feature debut, just, I mean, you know, (laughs) what a, what an amazing film to to learn how to make a film with. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, in a way it's like the perfect one because of the, the mountain that you're having to climb and you know, the fact that like previously you had like shorts experience and, Mm -hmm. and a little bit in like TV stuff and, um, but no feature work is just really incredible. And now, I mean, just to, to name off some of the incredible accomplishments, it's on the Oscars shortlist for best original song. It was a three times nominee at the NAACP image awards, uh, won the critics choice award for uh, best doc feature and won an AFI audience award. I mean, and it's all so, so deserving. So like, how has it been both as a filmmaker and such a close relative to Ellis to just have this really like rocket trajectory. You know, it's hard to believe actually, because the work, the people who came together to build this extraordinary team, you know, I can't take full credit because, Mm or we are such a family and a team and so many people have pushed us up this hill. And it's really been important to acknowledge that because because we were working for so much less money than you would expect for a prestige project like this, it was always people who believed, you know, mm-hmm. and who were willing to work for scale. They're not in it for the money. Yeah, and understood right. the nature of the story we were telling and enjoyed being custodians of that mm. of that story. Understood that we were all here like to pull this story up and that it's not for me necessarily. It's not even for Ellis, but it's for the culture. Mm-hmm. It's for people to realize, you know, that this example of black excellence existed and it does just as it does today. We had to be custodians of that story and the importance of being the ones to tell that story through that lens and a black lens specifically. And, you know, this is important now as we talk about authorship, representation um, in the arts and who gets to tell the stories and how, why that really, really matters. It's really been exciting to, to really do the work, have our heads down, knowing that it was a tremendous amount of responsibility to get it right, to be accurate historically, but to also be accurate in honoring each of the artists who are featured in the film because it's their story too. So that was the immense amount of pressure, mm-hmm. not just to make sure that we were getting the story right for history and for the artist, but also to think of it as like, Soul was so innovative. The footage itself, the show alone is just absolutely gorgeous and ahead of its time. And mm-hmm. I think of it as like this beautiful bouquet of flowers. So we had to create the right vase to sit those flowers in. You know, we had to earn that. We couldn't, Mm -hmm. we had to make something that was commensurate with something that was so innovative 50 years ago. So how can we be innovative now such that we earn the right to use that footage? You know, it was never automatically um, gonna work out. We had to make sure it was gorgeous. For me, it needed to Mm -hmm. be cinematic. So we really were very specific around how we shot, how many cameras we shot, having mm. like a, you know, uh, a 12 foot Dana dolly and, and a second camera moving and like 
really thinking of it cinematically mm. and, and the colors and how people's skin would be lit and how beautiful they would look because we, we knew we couldn't cut from this gorgeous footage to, you know, to contemporary 4K. Right. It would be really jarring. So what right. is the job of the filmmaker to not only earn the right to use that beautiful footage, but to make these like sim seamless transitions and such? So now that we're receiving awards and everything, we never did it for the awards. We are totally. never cloud chasing at all. We were doing the work. Mm. And the work to be able to earn the right to to tell the story. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly gratifying now to receive awards. My favorite uh, mistake was <laughs> one of the awards, the way they described it, it was Best Narration, I think, was one of the nominations. Mm. And it said Best Narration. And uh, the award would go to the narrator, which in this case is Blair Underwood. And they said the writer was Ellis Hazlip. <laughs> and I was like, that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, he is the mastermind. You right, right. All his idea, maybe all these years later, maybe he's <laughs> you know, puppeteering from heaven or something. But, right. And in a way I thought, well, yeah, of course, because I did take all of his words verbatim. You know, nothing right. was edited. We just put it together and assembled it into these little pods of these little vignettes. Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, no, it, it can't be a posthumous award because he didn't actually write it. <laughs> uh, we didn't end up winning that award, but it was really funny. And we had to ask them to change it to my name as the writer because right. otherwise there'd be nobody to accept it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, I'm glad that you brought up that you were, you were doing the work because just this morning I had an interview, um, with a filmmaker from Memphis and went and who has had like also a fantastic trajectory with his, uh, shorts filmography. Um, and, and we talked about how that is, you know, of course it feels great to have recognition and to be critically acclaimed and that kind of stuff. But if you connect, your success, either your film success or your personal success strictly to awards, then you will, then you will not like get the full feeling of fulfillment. The most important thing as filmmakers is to do the work and, and connect with audiences and the exactly. audience reception to this film has just been so positive. So how has it felt to, you know, both, like you said, those two camps of people who were like finally someone's talking about this connect with those people, yeah. but also usher in new people like me and see them like you are the messenger of of this world to them. So how has it felt as that as that messenger? You know, I've been so excited to share. We've had our heads down working for so long. Right. And people just would just kind of write me off. Oh yeah, she's working on that film. And I would just say, yeah, we're, we've got another shoot, and and I'm writing another grant, and we've got another shoot, and I'm writing another grant. Right. <laughs> so, right. And I never really wanted to people to invest too much in that process because it was really a, a labor of love. And it really did take a long time. We had a lot of setbacks and then we had a lot of incredible moments with grants and grantors and, and um, that and relationships with our with the people who gave us the money. And so now we're at this moment when we get to share this this beautiful almost love letter to black culture. And right. it's not just a gift of giving Ellis, but it's a gift of giving back to us. It's saying, hmm. 
this is our culture. This is our history. Black history is American history. And here's a beautiful gift, something you may not know, even though you were, you've been here or you're woke or, you know, you know, it's up and you have, you know, your music, you'd be surprised. Some of the most, like some of the most extraordinary music executives that I've been talking to recently are just furious with me. They're like, what in the hell? I don't know why the curse more than that, but how did this happen? You know, he's at a big record label is like, how did I not know? Like he's always right. mad, you know, and I'm right. like, we'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just. You're right. You're like, boy, do I have the documentary for you. <laughs> yeah, work through that anger. And then <laughs> I just think it's really important to, to, it's really exciting to have something to still discover about something mm. that you love. And if you're a music nerd like me and, you know, you keep stats on music and, and records and, and musicians the way people follow sports, you know, and teams and they know who's mm-hmm. playing and stuff and they know their stats. I'm that way about music and, mm-hmm. and, and used to study liner notes and sleep with albums in my arms and, you know, it's just totally a music nerd. And so the idea of being able to sort of give back this mm-hmm. gift, it's, it's so inspiring and it's such a feel good movie. I think it's something that we need right now more than ever. Mm-hmm. We're so divided, you know, having come through the, the what happened last summer and certainly sort of recovering from the last administration. It's really important to have films like this that invite everyone in and, mm-hmm. and give you a chance to maybe discover something you didn't know about your own culture, your own music, or, mm-hmm. or reinforce what you already did know and fall in love all over again and feel inspired and maybe bridge the gap for the young folks too, who would have missed it anyway, because they came after that. Right. We didn't want to do anything that was pedantic or, you know, all formal and officious, but more about this is a vibe and it was such a vibe and it was, it happened right here in New York and Mm -hmm. right here in this country. And we have moments like that this sort of unsung hero stories, like I said in the beginning, that can be so rewarding because they have access points for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're yeah. a music fan or a jazz fan or a hip hop fan trying to see, or a poetry fan, mm-hmm. you know, or just a retro fan, history fan. There's something in this film for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I think what ends up is like it's wrapped in humanity. Like that's the gift wrap and love and the right. love Ellis, you know, that comes through because we, we wanted to make him a hero in his own story. Someone you could fall in love with someone like an unlikely hero. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really crazy to get awards. And for us, the most important thing is the visibility. Cause remember right. we we're still seeking, um, we were very close to having an offer for uh, distribution on a streamer, which is really exciting. And we just mm-hmm. had a, our PBS premiere, which was fantastic. But we also want to have the most visibility for the film because it really is a gift. And Mm. so when you're putting the film up for awards, you're really just trying to find an opportunity for more people to see it. Right. And so we look at it that way, like, okay, great. You know, if we get a nomination, then other people say, oh, wait, what's this film? And then you can say, check it out, you know, because Mm. that's all that we really want. And as independent filmmakers, that's really the gift in the end is having mm-hmm. your work seen and having it shared. And it, if it means something to people, 
then that's that's really the that's the win yeah it's so interesting the cyclical nature of all the topics that this documentary covers both in like you said the conversations and like the cultural zeitgeist of the civil rights movement late 60s early 70s with the continuing civil rights movement that is currently happening um but also the cyclical nature of it being on pbs and you just premiered on pbs i know (laughs) (laughs) i was really getting a kick out of that because here we have a show that was canceled, you know, and it was heartbreaking because of what it did to the culture. And now we're premiering on the same, very same channel and the same broadcast system that, you know, and ironically we're having, we had the highest ratings, by the way, when we heard that Monday than any other film on this series since 2018. Yeah, which is not a, a bragging point, but it's just a remarkable statistic when you think about it. Mm. Uh, we are on independent lens, which plays on Monday nights at ten o'clock. Mm. So much so that PBS came in and decided to re-air the film in thirty-nine additional markets on Friday night. Now, to understand what that means, that doesn't usually happen. Just like right. you know. 60 Minutes is on Sunday. It's not going to re-air on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So yeah. that's what I mean by to understand the significance of this, that we had such high ratings for a Monday show that PBS is going to take it and put it on Friday when when television stations across the nation already had their programming and it was mm-hmm. changed so that they could show the film again. That's really exciting to me because it it shows that there is a demand for this content that that in a way bringing Ellis Hazlett back to, um, you know, it's like a full circle moment. Right, and right. That is just so redeeming. It's redeeming for Ellis Hazlett in his belief that he was doing something important, the way he was curating the culture. And also for for us right now to recognize that and be willing to embrace that and say, yes, mm-hmm. it is important. And this Mm -hmm. will help us see how far we've come and how far we have yet to go in terms of representation and authorship and, um, you know, diversity, inclusion, all of these hot button conversations that we're having right now, hot button topics. Right, right. And I am so glad to get to dive into you know your growth as like a filmmaker throughout all of this because i'm a filmmaker this is a podcast about filmmaking and you know like i said most of the people listening to this are filmmakers who are in film school or just graduated like i did just a few months ago oh congrats yeah yeah i graduated in, in august and moved up here in november so i'm wow new and here graduated <laughs> in the in the pandemic yeah i was supposed to graduate during may but I ended up having to take like a summer class because of it. Oh, I had to like postpone my thesis film. It, it, it was a roller coaster of a year for I film students. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, you're like in that one class that everyone will always talk about. Absolutely. You know? and, and the art that you make from this point forward will be completely impacted by how you. 100%. Your year. 100%. I'm my my thesis film. I couldn't like make it in in the way that I was going to make it. So now were it's called blueberries it's it's inspired by my experience of um taking care of my grandmother with alzheimer's with my mother over the past like seven years and in the time 
whenever we were going to film it, she was still living, but she passed away in December. Oh. And so we're filming in Jan in, in June. And so it, it holds a really like it, the, the story was always important to me, yeah. but now it's just even more potent in a way. So oh, I'm almost glad that I am going through this grief because now I get to insert that into the film. So. And that is so hard to do, facing grief mm -hmm. and being creative at the same time. Yeah. Because it really taps into the emotions that are riding right next to each other. Yeah, it's, exactly. It, you know, your memory and the pr preservation of that memory mm -hmm. and working through those emotions is what we do as a filmmaker anyway. Mm -hmm. So I got to say shout out to you for being able to <laughs> complete that because yeah. well, thank that's you. so difficult. Yeah. I've been talking with my producers about, you know, now we're like kind of picking up where we left off in a way to prep for the shoot. And, you know, I've been, I haven't touched a script since last year and mm -hmm. I'm like kind of working myself up to relook at it. Cause I know I'll, we'll be looking through it in a much more mature and just different all around different lens. I'm going to so. say, cause think how much you grew up, how, how yeah. you were forced to grow up and what you've been forced right. to reckon with in the mm. midst of the pandemic and the sort of racial reckoning of the country and right and the loss of your dear beloved grandmother mm. and it's almost like you haven't you haven't had a chance to cycle through all of those emotions it's like several cycles right right and and that's a, like you know um sorry i didn't mean to make this about my film <laughs> that, no, was not, that was not the intention i i do I don't right. want to turn the questions on you, but I'm no, like, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about it. Um, what's really been the craziest part is that we haven't had a funeral yet. You know, like we're well, so used in just in a couple of weeks, actually, I'm going home and it's only going to be like my immediate family. And um, that I got to say, having uh, a family like she didn't have COVID, luckily, but having a family member pass whenever in a time in which you can't be get together wouldn't wish it on anyone like truly because she passed away and and luckily i was able to go home i i my flight landed three hours before she passed away in memphis oh. and it's just we we didn't get to have all of our extended family come together and like just all these you know funerals are of course sad but they're an opportunity to come together and talk about this person that you all love so it's so weird that's that's the best like it's so weird and sad to 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 go through it but it makes you know it makes me feel even more responsible to to make the film and why i'm you know all my crew like they're still dedicated now we're all spread out like my dp is in la now my right, right. producer is still in savannah so like it's we're, our budget's going to have to like double <laughs> because of transporting everybody, but we're going to make it happen because um, I, I have to, there's no choice. You know what I mean? You will always look back on this time too and be amazed by your ability to navigate this extraordinarily different and difficult time. There's mm -hmm. no precedent for what you're experiencing. Right. And trying to postpone your grief for the, you know, on the calendar, that doesn't yeah. really work in your heart. No, not at all. And so, you know, it's almost like you can't even prepare for that and how to tap back mm -hmm. into those emotions and what, how you're going to navigate that when it happens. It's almost, 
I call it the grief gremlins. You know, the grief gremlins yeah. are, do not have their own set of rules. And exactly. um, even if you may have postponed this moment to come all together, you know, you just never know when the grief gremlins are going to sh show up and wreak havoc. And right. it's just, I feel for you because that's, it's hard to be in charge of a production, especially, and a production that's honoring the very person who's gone. Right. It takes a. It takes almost like another level of mm. of focus to really hone in on, if anything, to really zero in on the story you're telling, and right. to have to almost put a pin in your emotions. But at the same time, that what exactly that separation in your mind is creating a really zeroed focus mm -hmm. that will make your film even more specific and divine. I think. Right. So you will really look back and go, oh, my God, how did I do that? But at the right. same time, you will have like a really focused and beautiful film. Well, thank you. I, I would love to to send you the script and get your yeah. thoughts about it. So I really appreciate the kind words because, um, yeah, it's it's going to be a roller coaster. But um, it's I, I, I think I'm as ready as I'll ever be, I guess. You know what else, too, <laughs> is that um, as artists, I feel like we are the ones who really have to survive. I know you said she didn't yeah. pass from COVID, but we have lost so many souls, you know, right? over 500,000. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. And sometimes I wake up and I think, how can I even be creative today? Right. How can I absolutely. focus on making films when so many people have perished and it just doesn't mm -hmm. feel right. And at the same right. then I have to remind myself, you know, pay homage to the souls and, and, and pray and then you have to re realize why we're still here. And mm -hmm. part of our job is to tell the story, is mm -hmm. to exist. And, and what kind of beauty can come from this moment? That's mm -hmm. what's going to be very fascinating to see. Because we have all been impacted, certainly, by this pandemic and by this um, quarantine and everything else that has turned everything upside down. Right. But the the need to tell the story and the need to be the voice on the other side of that, that's really uh, another kind of reckoning. And I, I, mm. I question that every day, like, well, w we can't be the way we were before. We can't even create right. the way we did before. We, right. we've, been, we've all been changed. And mm -hmm. so what will that look like? And how can you apply almost like a, you know, this chrysalis coming apart and this new form of art, especially when we're thinking about where it will land. Theaters right. not necessarily, you know, may or may not reopen. And what kind of platforms can we create that are democratic for all? Hmm. You know, it's a kind of a scary time, but the best, the only good thing I should say is that we're all trying to figure it out together. Right. We're all kind of wondering, gosh, how are we going to do this? Right. But the important thing is that we survive first and mm -hmm. that we tell the story after. Mm -hmm. You know, and I really think this will be a demarcation point in the zeitgeist of creativity. Yeah. And what, what comes after this will be fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I, I think like, I mean, like you said, COVID has changed all of our perspectives and mm -hmm. a, huge perspective shift for me not that i didn't have this perspective but it really just reminded me the important 
it reminded me of what's important in life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like we, you know, the, the filmmaker grind, you worked on this film for 10 years. Like yeah. you're, you're head down, you're working, 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 working. I haven't slept in 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Co yeah. COVID I think caused a lot of people to like peep our head above water and be like, Oh wow. I just, I need to be with family. And, yeah. and I just need to exist with them. And that like family is, is, has always been important to me, but it's even more important now. And even more of a reason to make uh, my film blueberries and we're filming it in my hometown at my grandmother's assisted living facility oh, wow. at the blueberry field that we picked blueberries. Um, I'll be staying in my childhood home. Like, you know, I grew up in this old house that uh, I think the original part was built in like 1876. So there's oh there's history in the walls as the floors creak and everything. Actually, a couple of years in 2018, I filmed a short there and I had a friend uh, <laughs> say, Wes, do you live in a museum? <laughs> <laughs> what town is it? It's in Cenotopia, Mississippi, oh, about an hour wow. south of Memphis. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I grew up across this... Um, across the street from this family-owned movie theater that's still running. It's totally independent. And they've survived COVID. The, someone ran a GoFundMe for them, and they raised like $7,000 or something. The community wow. really came together. So it's just been a great way to um, re-recognize the importance of like the spaces that we occupy. Yeah. So I'm... When you go home, man, I'm... Cue the waterworks, because that's going to be... Uh, oh, absolutely. Gonna... I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. I, I will face it head on. Absolutely. But, you know, this will definitely be also be a turning point for you, you know, mm -hmm. because you it'll be a watershed moment, literally and figuratively, but right. it'll be a moment that you, that you will never forget. And it'll also be, have a really defining characteristic and aesthetic that you put on the, on the film because you've mm -hmm. never been in that frame of mind. This has never happened. Right. In a way, it's really exciting to see how it will impact the film, but it's also going to be super challenging personally. Yeah, But sometimes absolutely. when we are pushed to the limits of our, um, you know, what, what, is, what is acceptable as a challenge or bearable, if you will, sometimes that can create the greatest work or the greatest art. Yeah. I, I, I agree completely because it's the most honest thing. Mm -hmm. Like I, I mean, it, this is the most honest part of my life is that story. So, um, how much more real can you get? You know what I mean? <laughs> so not much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you have the support of all of your family and you'll, you'll have this sort of collective grief, but also collective mm. feeling. And that's mm. an incredible energy that you can use for, you know, to sort of buoy your creativity. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate, I didn't expect to talk about blueberries, but I, I appreciate oh. your interest. <laughs> it really does mean a lot as a, as a, as a young filmmaker who just graduated to um, hear your kind words. So genuinely, I, I really, yeah. really appreciate it. And, you know, my hope in terms of this podcast is to connect with yeah. people who are just starting out and are trying to figure it out because the the film industry has changed it's changing every day you know sure um, My goodness. i know you have of course grown a lot as a filmmaker throughout this process and yeah. telling this story in, in the great way that you did what would you say to that young filmmaker that maybe isn't even in film school yet but they know they want to tell stories and they know they want to connect with people 
what would you tell them? I, you know, immediately, I know I would say, hold on to your dreams and your story because your story is so important. It's so unique. And it is, it's almost like your DNA. It can't be replicated. It's unique to you. And no matter what anybody tells you, it's your story. It can't be taken or changed. Well, unless you make that decision. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're, we're in a moment where personal stories and personal content is so hot right now because everybody, mm-hmm. we're almost in a glut where we're starting to see a lot of return to the old stuff and return to feel good stuff. And the whole retro programming is now everything from WB network is going up on HBO max, <laughs> you know, all the fresh prints episodes are going to be up on HBO max. And there's sort of a return to what makes people feel good. But the most mm-hmm. important thing really is, you know, your blueprint, your DNA, it's in your stories. And no matter what it takes to get that story made or seen or heard, you just have to hold on to that story and believe in it. And then you can believe in yourself because mm-hmm. nobody has a story that you can tell, you know, and that, that is the key. The second thing I would say is if this is a story that you must tell and that you feel deserves a treatment in film or video or, you know, something more experimental, just find your tribe and find the people that will support you and love you and stick with you because <laughs> you have no idea how long it might take to come to fruition. So the important thing is to find like might like minded individuals who believe in you and believe in your story the way you see it Um, because everything changes people come in Mm -hmm. and out of your life money comes and goes crew members come and go you move around we lose people you know we're learning all of this now but the constant is your belief in yourself and your story and the building of the team around you that will keep you afloat and make sure that story gets told because even after years and years of editing, I realized that, thank goodness I had people around me who not only could put up with me <laughs> in rather dire circumstances, but could also fall in love with the story they were telling too, because they, are, they become your stewards. They become the people who their talents become part of, you know, part of your blueprint as well. Because we, it takes a nation to make a film. And it's so hard, even if you're wearing all the hats, like I'm director, producer, writer. I also was the caterer, you know, I also, (laughs) I make ads now, you know, there's like so many things that we do to save money. But the important thing is to, to make sure that you're building the team that can help fulfill the dream. And I didn't even make that up to sound corny, but it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Mm hmm. Wow. Well, I think that is, yeah, I I agree completely. I I think that is the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Um, I am so excited to, you know, give the Tungsten audience like a look into you and your film, because again, I feel like I got such an exclusive sneak peek three years ago. My mother and I watched it at Indie Memphis and um, I am so glad that this film is now entering into the public sphere on yeah. PBS, which I grew up watching. Um, it's just all around an incredible story. Aww. And, um, 
you know, I'll be I'll be rooting for you at the Oscars. This comes out. Your publicist told me that this comes out when the voting is happening. So hopefully some Academy members are listening to this and, you know, are going <laughs> to cast a vote your way. Um, but I just I wish you all the best. I, so there's much. no one more deserving, I think. And um, I, this is just a really, really special experience. So I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, Memphis, for put, bringing us together. Absolutely. Oh, it's a special time. And I, I do remember meeting um, at, at the, I remember meeting you, I think. Didn't we meet at, at the? Yeah. Festival? After the screening, at my, my mother and I talked to yes. you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I also remember meeting a woman who turned out to be the sister of um, one of the members of Earth, Wind & Fire, Verdine White. <sighs> wow. I, she came up to me after the screening at the, um, at the Civil Rights Museum, which was the closing mm -hmm. night of the festival. Mm -hmm. And she was in tears. And I thought, oh, you know, sometimes that happens. People get very emotional right, right. at the end of the show and they, at the end of the film, rather. And um, they're all in their emotions. And so she came up to me crying and she said, this is such a beautiful film. And I want to thank you for making it. And I just wish my brother were here to see it. I wish Reese is here to see it. And I was like, Reese, Reese. She said, yeah, Reese would love this. And I said, who's Reese? And she's like, oh, that's that's what I called my brother Maurice. And I'm like, oh. my wow. mind starts spinning. And I'm like, no, she's not talking about Maurice White. And my, the hair just stood up on my arms. And as right. I said that, she said, my brother is Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire. And I was like, oh, my God. And I started <sighs> crying. Right. And that's when I realized, of course, you guys grew up in Memphis. Right. And she's like, and, and I'm like, wait, are you... So that means you're Verdine White's sister? And she's like, yes, I'm his twin. And she's like, I'm going to call him right now. And she picks up her phone and she starts dialing <laughs> Verdine White. And I'm like in tears. Like, right, right. Photo quick before my makeup comes <laughs> right. off. But it was such a special moment. I'll never mm. forget it. And, and we stayed in touch over text. Now mm. cut to all these three years later, last week, we did an event at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, where we showed the film and then we had a talk back. And guess who their special guest was? <laughs> For Dean <laughs> White. Wow. Because he was wow. inducted in, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire was inducted right. in the year um, in 2000. And so mm. I just, it just blew me away. I thought back to Memphis and I thought about that mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, so much can happen in in a short period of time or three Absolutely. years. And so it's been quite a journey for the music yeah. of the film, but also just as a filmmaker, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I feel very blessed and lucky to be the custodian of this mm -hmm. story. But really I feel like I'm pushing it from behind the way Ellis did, you know, he really curated the culture. I feel like I'm here to share that story with America now. Mm -hmm. So thank you for letting me, Share absolutely you're you're welcome anytime i i would love i'm i will absolutely be keeping you know in touch with with your work and your future projects and you are a part of the tungsten family you're welcome oh, here anytime thank you and you have to keep me in touch with what's happening with blueberries okay i you definitely know? will absolutely 100 percent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you again you know who to call it, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I most definitely will. And we're both in New York now. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Brooklyn there you go. Like 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh -oh. You can probably suggest a lot of great places for me to go because I'm so new here. So that'd be fantastic. Um, well, thanks again. And 
yeah, uh, I look forward to seeing everything else you accomplish. Thank you. And I look forward to following your success as well. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And we will catch you next week. Bye-bye.